Well, good morning, Steamtown Church. If you have a copy of the Bible, please turn with me to the book of Job. Uh, I want to want to welcome everyone this morning. Uh, welcome our online viewers. Uh, if you're if you're visiting uh, with us this morning, I'm thankful that 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 you're here. Now, today's message is entitled "When Life Hurts," the Book of Job. You know, on Wednesday, there was a, a funeral at, at Steamtown Church, and, and it, was a, it was a tragedy. A 17-year-old died unexpectedly. So for me this morning, you know, when life hurts, the story of Job, and we have the 20th uh, anniversary of 9-11 coming up, we're going to have a special service that day on the 12th, Sunday the 12th. So, so today, it's, it, this isn't just me wrestling with something theological, although it is, or something philosophical, although it is, but for me, for me this morning, as, as we work through this, this message is, is, is deeply personal because this past week, life hurt. Life hurt for a family, life hurt for uh, Riverside High School, and the, the, the scores of teenagers that were at Steamtown Church. Now, I have in, pile, in front of me a, a, uh, a pile of rocks and a flashlight. And I'm going to get to these things uh, in a second. If you have your copy of the Bible, turn with me to Job chapter 1. When life hurts, the story of Job. Here's how the book of Job begins. Verse 1 says, our, our text says, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Verse 1 continues, look at it. This man was a God-fearing man. What's the text say? He was the least likely guy on the planet to deserve evil. The Bible says he was blameless, upright, feared God, and shunned evil. See, Job was a man of remarkable integrity. Pastor Eric, you nailed it two weeks ago when you talked about what it means for a Christian to live in integrity. Well, Job's that guy. Additionally, verse 3 and 4 says that Job had some bling bling, right? He was an extremely wealthy guy, college students. He didn't have to go to Plato's Closet or the Salvation Army or Goodwill. Like he was shopping at like Hollister. I got American Eagle on this morning. <laughs> Verse 3 and 4 says that Job was an extremely wealthy man. He had stocks, he had bonds, he had retirement, he had cash in his pocket. He owned a lot of land, a lot of animals. He had a lot of workers and a house full of children. Check out Verse 3. Verse 3 says, look at it, Job was... The greatest man among all the people of the East. So this guy was legit. He was greatly blessed. And if you remember in our series in the book of Proverbs, right? Good people prosper. Not so good people aren't supposed to prosper. And so Job wrestles with like the very opposite 
What happens when bad things happen to good people? Because when you look at Job, he's done nothing wrong. But in this story, in one day, everything falls apart. Has it ever happened to you? One day? Someone that you love breaks up with you? Kansas City loses the Super Bowl? You find out global, global warming wasn't real? For many of us in 2020, it, it really did feel like everything fell apart. In one day, Job loses everything. If you read chapter 1, and I want to encourage you to spend the time you know, reading it. But when you read chapter 1, his wealth, gone. His business, like this guy had an empire, gone. Livestock, stolen, consumed by fire. His workers, you know what happened to them? Yeah, they were murdered. And then, and then when you get later in the chapter, you find out that tragedy strikes his children. And some of you, that you can relate to this. All ten of Job's children dies. In one day, this guy receives four death notifications. That stuff still happens today. It happened to a family last night in the city of Scranton. Tragedy in Greenridge. Young girl. You see, four, four death notifications, uh, verse 15, 16, 17, and 18. But it doesn't stop there. In chapter 2, we see that Job gets sick. He gets a fever. He gets like this real, like, terror, like his skin hardens. Boils. In chapter 7, we learn that he has running sores and worms, itching, corroding bones, gnawing pain. In fact, in Job chapter 2 and verse 12, the text says that Job's condition was so bad that when his friends saw him from a distance, right? Hashtag master back. Social distancing is like, you know, going to happen again. When Job's friends saw him from a distance, the text says that they could hardly recognize who this guy was. And for Job, in chapter 7, we learn that this terrible disease lasted for months. In chapter 7, he just cries out. In chapter 3, Job wishes that he had never even been born. It, it's one of the things I love about the Bible. It doesn't... It doesn't it doesn't ignore the human reality of pain and suffering. It doesn't turn a blind eye toward these things. Then in chapter 2 and verse 9, check it out. Job's wife, who according to her theology, which was mainstream at the time, look at what she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Because the theological position, as you learn through the rest of the book, is you only suffer if you don't have integrity. So Job, what are you, what are you hiding from, from me, us, in our marriage? Are you still going to maintain your integrity, Job? 
In other words, if you had any integrity at all, you would not be suffering. Look at what she says. So why don't you just curse God and die? And in those four words is the key that unlocks the book of Job. She says, curse God and die. What will it take for you and I and mankind, what will it take for you to curse God? When life hurts, is God still worth worshiping? Here's how Satan puts it in chapter 1 and 2. Satan refers to the Lord twice in our text, in verse 11 and in, in verse one, chapter 1 and verse 11 and chapter 2 and verse 5. What will it take for man to curse God? You know, Satan was, Satan was wrestling with, with this question. And he says, well, God... If Job loses everything, you know what Satan says? He will, 100% fact, guarantee, he will curse you to your face. In fact, Satan says, well, he only worships you because you hook him up. You put a hedge of protection around him. And if you take everything from him, he will curse you to your face. Now, what does Job do? I mean, everyone's watching. Everyone's wondering, what, what is this guy, what is it going to take for Job to be done with God? To accuse him of being a bad God, terrible God. And it's amazing. It's unbelievable. You know what, you know what Job does? He stands up, tears his clothes, shaves his head, and then falls down to the ground in worship. In chapter 1, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, through it all, right? That song, through it all, through it all. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In chapter 2, Job says, Shall we accept good from God, and not trouble. In all this, Job not, did not sin in what he said. In chapter 13, he says, though he slays me, permits suffering, allows suffering into our lives. Hear what Job says, yet I will hope in him. I mean, it's unbelievable. See, suffering is often like a pile of rocks. You ever wonder what sleeping rocks dream about? Suffering's often like a pile of rocks. I mean, like the natural temptation is you want to take this rock and you want to throw it at the person that has brought you hurt and pain. I mean, that's one thing you could do with a rock. I mean, you could try throwing it at God, right? David was angry with God. You know, what's amazing to me when I read about um, some of the communism in the 20th century how these Christians went to prison and had the sole focus to not, in their pain and suffering, to not throw the rock at the prison guards, but to be so filled with joy and to pray for the salvation 
of what they, you know, what they called the communists. How do you love somebody that has brought so much pain and suffering in your life, separate the ideology, the anti-God philosophy of communism from that individual and look at them in the eye and see them how God views them and say, you know what, pile of rock is like suffering, I'm not going to throw the rock. You know, another thing that we often do when it comes to our suffering, one thing you could do with rocks is just let it lie there. Just let, never actually deal with it. This is why, like, I'm a big proponent of grief share. I've watched people suffer for years and decades because they just think it's going to go away. You know, another thing you could do at rocks, you can carry them. And I'm telling you, some of us have so much pain and suffering in our lives that our backpacks are filled with rocks and we walk around like that. Heavy, heavy. You know what God wants us to do with our suffering? He wants us to take the rocks, build an altar, just like Job. Worship God. I mean, it's amazing. You have this guy in the Bible named Job who loses everything. He tears his clothes, shaves his head, stands up, and then falls to the ground and worship and accuses God of nothing but goodness gives him nothing but praise. Is God still worth worshiping for Job? He says yes. You know what 1 Peter chapter 2 says? 1 Peter says this. This, this, is, this is unbelievable, verse 1 and 2. You've got to check it out sometime. But here's what it says. One of the reasons that we never grow in our faith, so if you like feel stuck in your faith, one of the reasons that we never grow in our faith is because when life hurts, we never actually declare the goodness of God from our hearts. I'm not talking about you getting all religious, right, and saying things that religious people want you to say. One of the reasons, according to, we've never tasted that the Lord is good. And from that bedrock, interpret all of life's circumstances from the position of the goodness of God. Like, like I'm never going to waver in God's goodness no matter what is thrown at me. First P Peter, Peter said it. One of the reasons we never grow in our faith is because we're not rooted in the character of God and his goodness. I mean, think about the story behind the song. Ever hear the song, It Is Well? It Is Well With My Soul? Familiar with that song? Do you know the backstory? In 1871, this great businessman in Chicago, Horatio Spotford, he lost all of his for fortune in the great Chicago fire. Gone. Everything he worked for. Around the same time, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. I can't even imagine the pain of losing a four-year-old son. I've got three boys. After experiencing this tremendous loss, Horatio decides to send his wife and four daughters on a ship to England for a needed vacation. 
I mean, they lost everything in the fire. The four-year-old died, the boy. You know the story? His wife and four daughters are crossing the Atlantic. And there's a terrible collision. It only took 12 minutes for the ship to sink. All 226 passengers died, including all four of his precious children. Somehow, miraculously, so this is before the Titanic, this was the greatest naval disaster of of passengers. His wife miraculously survives. She gets to England. What do you think she does? She sends a telegram to her husband. It says, saved alone, what shall I do? After hearing this terrible news, he boards a ship out of New York to be with his wife. At one point in the voyage, the captain of the ship summoned Horatio and told him that they were now passing over the very spot the shipwreck had occurred. And it was there, while staring into the watery grave of his four daughters, that Horatio penned these words to the great hymn, It is well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. It is well, it is well. With my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well. With my soul. And if Horatio Spofford can live with such hope in that moment, what is stopping you? In 2014, a close friend of mine was battling stage four kidney disease. His name was Ken Shepard. And let me tell you about Ken. He was told that he had X amount of years left to live. I mean, he had a wife, lived in Clark Summit. He was only in his late 40s. He had a seven-year-old boy, a 16-year-old daughter, And here's what this guy is posting on social media. A couple years left to live and knows it. Rare form of kidney cancer. This is what he's posting on social media. Hard times, bad times, rough times. I still have faith in God. Remember that every path walked is walked for a reason. And every day is full of blessings no matter how big or small. Hard times will constantly be there. You know who else will be there? So will Christ. Ken lost his battle with cancer in 2014, and I'll never forget it. This place was packed out for Ken's funeral. Do you know what Ken wanted us to sing in that moment? It is well, it is well with my soul. 
Amazingly, Job stands up, tears his clothes, shaves his head, falls to the ground, and worships. You know even more what he does? Check out chapter 19 and verse 25. Look at what Job does. He says, I have a present and future hope. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Like, how did he know that? How did Job know that he had a Redeemer who lived. In fact, in the book of Job, do you know Job requests two things from God? He requests a redeemer. So, so he says, I have a redeemer, present tense, but then he also requests a redeemer, future tense, and then he also asks God for a mediator because Job's like in a suffering. Who can stand before a holy, perfect God? And if man... One of the questions he also asks in the book is, will man live again once he dies? So so when we read these New Testament verses about the person of Christ, to me I get chills because I think of how Job would have longed to hear these words, like, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14, Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I mean, who was Job looking for? Job refers to a redeemer and requests a mediator. See, for believers, true hope is not about some God in the sky speaking words of comfort to us while we suffer. True hope says this. No matter what I'm going through, I know that I know, that I know, that I know, that I know, that I know. My Redeemer lives. True hope, listen to this, is about Jesus, God the Son, the eternally sinless one, the true and better Job who satisfied God's wrath. True hope is about God entering the human condition, sharing in our sufferings, understanding our pain, understanding injustice and oppression and abuse and betrayal and tragedy. You know one of my favorite verses in the New Testament? Jesus wept. In Judaism and Islam, it is unthinkable for God to suffer. He's too transcendent But in Christianity, you have this God who is transcendent, who steps in to history. The word tabernacles becomes flesh, suffers agony on a cross, and takes away the sins of the world. See, in the book of Job, he requests a redeemer and a mediator. And if it's not Jesus, then who is he referring to? Who's going to save us? 
And then for 33 chapters, Job's a big book. It's actually 42 chapters long. Job and his friends argue and debate and wonder why all these bad things are happening. And after everyone gets a chance to speak, you know what God does? Chapter 38 and chapter 39, God speaks from a whirlwind. And God asks Job 70 questions about cosmology, oceanography, meteorology, astronomy, and all these words that I can't even pronounce. And you know what God does? He never tells Job why he is suffering. Are you looking today for an answer as to why this happened to you or why this happened to your friends or family or why you are suffering and why evil and suffering exist? Are you looking for answers? Because we all want answers and there's answers. I personally like what's called the free will defense. Check it out sometime. I think it's a very compelling philosophical answer. There's the fall of man. I mean, that's a no-brainer. It's a big reason why evil exists. But in the end, you know what God does in Job's hope? God gives us something better than an answer. You know what God does? God gives us himself. He gives us a cure. He gives us a redeemer, Jesus Christ. And, and our hope today is that he will come back again. And one day, God will wipe away every tear. Job says, I know that my redeemer lives. And what that tells us is that evil will not have the final word in our lives. He will. Scripture says three days later, he rose from the grave. At Jacob's funeral, I said these words, search the world or something to the like, and you will never find a satisfactory answer like Christianity to the problem of evil, that God himself faced it head on and defeated death and rose from the grave. The thing that we fear the most in life, death, Christ conquered in Buddhism, suffering is an illusion, and we have to save ourselves. Atheism, or new atheism, if you like, no one is greater than you, and ultimately it's survival of the fittest. In this up-and-coming new spirituality thing, you are the greatest force in the universe. So like when it comes to the evil and suffering in our lives, that's the answers that we're getting right now. Save yourself. No one is greater than you. You are the greatest force in the universe. And I'm like, really? If I've learned anything about life, listen to this. If I've learned anything about life, there is absolutely no hope if it all depends on you and I. None. Like, that's the answers that our culture is giving us? Humanism at its best. We're going to cure everything. 
We're going to tell you how to act, live, and breathe. Everywhere I travel, I see sad eyes, hopeless eyes. Can you see them? Can you see the sad eyes? Can you see the hopeless eyes? At the 17-year-old's funeral on Wednesday, I saw, I couldn't believe how many high school students came. I saw and experienced deep sadness, and, 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 and it was very understandable. Very little hope. But I also saw a generation in their eyes that they were looking for some hope. And listen, these teenagers, Riverside District is phenomenal. Many of them are optimistic about, about their future. You don't think teenagers have dreams too and desires what they want to do with their lives? It's awesome. But there's a big difference between having an optimistic outlook to life and true hope. Big difference. One of the things that we can never forget is that all earthly hopes and desires and wishes are completely temporary. I mean, there's nothing wrong looking forward to the next president or hoping that a certain career will work out for you, or a certain relationship, or you'll just be happy when you get a certain promotion. But sooner or later, you will discover that every earthly hope and every earthly desire, in the end, they just won't deliver. And many of them get dashed on life's highway. You don't think I want the best for my kids? But what happens when I have no more kids? Big difference between earthly hope and ultimate hope. See, ultimate hope is directly connected to the meaning of our life. And, and, and each one of us needs to ask ourselves, what is our ultimate hope? What is your ultimate hope? What is the one aspiration that unifies your entire life? That's why being a Christian is a game changer. As Christians, we have this hope, this confidence that our lives have meaning. As Christians, we are people of hope. As Christians, our future is brighter than our past. As believers, we can find hope every day in such a broken world. Every single one of us can say, I hope and I have hope because death has been defeated. And God loved each of us so much, so much, that he was willing to suffer and die on a cross for all of our sins face evil head on, and raise from the grave. Deep in my heart I say, the writer of Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 24, deep in my heart I say, the Lord is, listen to this, all I need. Deep in my heart, the writer of Lamentations says, the Lord is all, my, all I need. And what's the log, what is the logical implication of that? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
because you know the um, the writer here says, therefore, what's the conclusion? I will put my hope in Him and Him alone. Some would say at Jacob's funeral, it wasn't a time to talk about hope, but to only grieve. But you know what? You know what Jacob loved? Jacob loved flashlights. Do you know what Jacob loved about flashlights? We had flashlights all over this church. There were flashlights up at the burial. Flashlights were everywhere because Jacob loved flashlights. You know what Jacob loved about flashlights? He loved how you could shine a flashlight in the darkest of a field and light it up. How a little bit of light in someone's life could make the biggest difference You know what light does is it drives out darkness. And don't think darkness isn't going to drive back. I mean, that's how life works. Light shines brightest in darkness. And in Jacob's darkness, one day in 2018, at 14 years old, do you know what Jacob did? He recognized the darkness, and he recognized the light. And that day, in that moment of time, one summer day in 2018, three years before the 17-year-old's death, when he was 14, he differentiated between the difference, and he decided to come forward and accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. And if there is ever a time in our lives to start offering the hope of the risen Christ to a dark world, now is the time. And if now isn't the time, when is it going to be the time? And why is it that, that the average believer shares their faith once over 30 years? There's an urgency. Life is short. There's more to this life than just this life. To have Christian hope means to know about evil and yet view the future with confidence and assurance because our hope is based on faith. Faith in God's faithfulness to his promises and faith in Christ's victory. To close, let me give you just a few, some real practical next steps. How does a person grow in hope? Number one, by reconnecting with God's story. Don't even get me going on the lack of a meta-narrative in our culture today. If we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord, then our hearts will be filled with hope. Number two, 
Listen, you, you think I'm playing games when I, like, every time I say search the scriptures daily, search, I, I pray that you ferociously search the scriptures so much that God would just fill your whole mind, your whole body, and your whole soul with hope. I mean, it is unbelievable the source of hope that God has given us, and yet we won't even crack it or download it or whatever. I'm just saying practically, how does a person grow in hope? By reconnecting with God's story, by searching the scriptures daily. Check out number three, by learning to hold earthly hopes lightly while clinging with fierce determination to ultimate hope. See, as believers, the main characteristic of our lives should be the fact that we always look upon things with hope at life, at our future, at ourselves, other people, and so on. Number four, how does a person grow in hope? By sharing the hope of Jesus. Because this is how it works. Because you're like kind of scared and you're not sure like what's going to happen. Like when you're out there on the streets on the corner of Pittston and Fig. And then you're like, hey, uh, you know, I don't know why, but like, you know, the Holy Spirit, like, was just compelling me to come up to you randomly and be like, can I tell you about the hope of Jesus? And let me tell you why this will help you grow in hope. Because, because right now, the world we're living in, do you know, you know people's reactions when they hear hope? They're like, oh my goodness, I was just eating a cheeseburger. What bacon, lettuce, some onions, and I was just sitting here thinking about God every time. I'm not saying it happens every time, but it happens every time. And then that grows your hope based on the reaction of your hope being offered to them because they need some hope right about now. How does a person grow in hope? By reconnecting with God's story, by searching the scriptures daily, by learning to hold earthly hopes lightly while clinging with fierce determination to ultimate hope, by sharing the hope of Jesus, and finally, by being, we're the church, right? By being connected in our lives, and one of the outlets of Steamtown Church is just an awesome program called Grief Share, by joining Grief Share. And maybe for some of you this morning, that might be the only next step for you. Mondays, September 13th, December 6th. Yes, this may be an age of challenge and hopelessness, but it is truly a time to offer the beautiful hope of Jesus Christ to this next generation. God bless you, Steamtown. Let us pray. God, I cannot think there would be somebody here today, every one of us, that don't need to grow in our hope 
in some way. Christ our hope, the hope of glory. Help us, Lord, to put our hope in you. God, we just enter a time where we, we're, we're, we're thinking of what our Lord and Savior did for us on the cross. God, thank you for presenting us with such hope. I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has never received you as their Savior, God, that right now, God, they would just call upon you and say, Lord, I know this world is dark and fallen. And I know you could have sat back and did nothing about it, but you came to this earth and you lived a sinless life and you died on the cross for all of our sins. You died and you were buried and you rose from the grave and you're coming again. And right now I want to accept you as my Lord and Savior. And Lord, as we enter into a time of reflection and confession, God, we just ask you to help us to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we ask this in his name.